Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Hello again, this is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm here with Ross Young, and pleased to present with for you another episode of CISO Tradecraft. As you know, if you've been listening to us the last few weeks, we've been trying to bring you tools and techniques to help you with your career as a security professional, and ideally help you to get up to the rank of CISO, or if you are a CISO, to help improve your skill sets. And so today, Ross and I would be pleased to share with you some insights in terms of leadership competencies and qualifications. We think that these types of uh, skills are going to be critical to success in any career, and particularly in our careers doing cybersecurity. Ross, what are your thoughts about the concept or what we're going to talk about this week? Yeah, you know, I think anyone who wants to become a CISO needs to understand that this is an executive role. And when we say executive, we mean a management role, not a individual contributor role. And so as you start to think about that, you say, well, if that's where I want to end up in my career, what do I need to, what do I need to be successful? What do I need to develop as a person so that I would actually become elected to, to have those roles and competencies? And there's this place in the federal government in the United States called the Office of Personnel Management, commonly known as OPM. And OPM has set a standard for federal guidelines of executive competencies. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about. Now, there, there's one little tweak because it is a little focused on the public sector. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how that one of those attributes switches over, but it's amazing criteria that can help anybody who's thinking, how do I go from being this technical person to being this executive that I want to be in my career? And Ross, that's an excellent point because what we find out is that there's competition for the CISO job from non-technical lines, people who have served either as a legal department or compliance department, or in some cases, other areas are successfully beating out people for the CISO job because they have that familiarity, that comfort with dealing with executives and, if you will, speaking executive language. And so what we want to do is equip you with those tools, not so much for the executive language, but really for the executive behavior, the competencies that you can develop in your career that are going to get noticed and are going to differentiate you from others who have not chosen to go ahead and make the same investment that you have made. That's right. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, people like to surround themselves with people that are similar in nature to them. So if you stick out really bad, that can sometimes be difficult for your career. Just imagine a business meeting where everybody shows up in a shirt and tie or a, a, a formal, you know, uh, let's say clothing uh, for, for, for females as well. And all of a sudden you show up in a pair of jeans and a Metallica t-shirt right? That's all black, right? It's 
the owner. Who, <laughs> yeah. Who, who's going to, who's going to look at that person and say, you know, that looks like executive material to me. That's the guy who we're going to, you know, bring into our ranks. Yeah. It, it's going to be really, really hard <laughs> unless you're the owner. Right. Yeah. And we're, and we're not talking about uh, clothing tips here and things like that, but the way you present yourself is really important because it is going to categorize you. So kind of a quick side story. So my son's a pen tester and uh, has done quite well. He's got two SAN certifications and is really, really good at what he does. And so he had a request this past week from a client to say, after the Solar Winds event, after all the publicity that's come out from some of those things, we want to have somebody do some security awareness, but you need to look like a hacker. So can you wear a black hoodie? Because you've already got this big giant beard and you look kind of the evil hacker part. Of course, he's not there doing the evil stuff. He's there saying, here's how attackers can take over. Here's how you can go ahead and defend yourself. But notice that he was being cast into the role of a technical person as a technician. And at this age and this point in his career, that's absolutely perfect for him. But years from now, if he's looking to go ahead and ascend to different levels of responsibility, it's going to require a bit of a change in the time and the investments that you put into. Um, certifications are great and certifications are indeed valuable because the process of studying for them and getting them are great. But what we find then is there's some fundamental competencies that work great for you as an executive. And so that's what we really want to talk about today is these six fundamental competencies that are considered to be essential for leadership as well as five executive core qualifications. So a lot to cover today. Let's get started. So the first fundamental competency that they share, and, and this is what you need to be brought to the table to even be under consideration, is interpersonal skills. This is how you treat others with courtesy, sensitivity, and respect, right? People want someone in, in management and leadership opportunities to set the tone. Right. If you're that boss that's yelling at your employees, well, that's going to trickle down and people aren't going to like working there. But if you're that boss that is that that charismatic leader is that servant leader that provides a really good platform for everyone else in the company to follow. And it's an interesting point, Ross, because we want to also perceive what is the culture of your organization. Is that if you have a charismatic leader or somebody who is positive, friendly, uh, uplifting at the top, we're going to find out that those type of leadership skills are going to be the most valued uh, and what people would expect. Conversely, if there's organizations that have, for lack of a better term, uh, coercive styles at the top, uh, those coercive senior people may try to look for other coercive subordinates. The problem is, is that you're not going to keep your talent. And so as a result, my way or the highway is really not a hallmark of developed leadership. In my opinion, that's amateurish. That's somebody who's insecure and does not know how to go ahead or has chosen not to develop these interpersonal skills. You can always go ahead and be emphatic when you need to, but that should be the exception rather than the rule. When they go, oh my goodness, the old man's mad, uh, people hop too. But if he's mad all the time, it doesn't mean anything anymore. So courtesy, respect, uh, understanding other people's responses and feelings. Um, you, you look at a typical approach where 
someone is not a salesperson is not making their quota. Um, and they say, of course, we don't, I don't think we have too much sales in, in security, but let's say you've got one of your security analysts and their performance has just been off the last several weeks. The traditional approach we tend to think of is you come in there and yell and say, you better pick up your job or you're fired. But what if we came in a different thing and say, hey, I'm worried about you. You're normally doing excellent work and things have fallen off. Is there something we can talk about? See, all of a sudden we're treating our people as people and that becomes a fundamental competency for leadership. They're going to attract and retain folks to work with you. The second one that's mentioned is oral communication skills, the ability to make clear and precise presentations. And we often think about just purely the speaking part, but I think what's really important is the listening part. You need to be a great active listener, and that's a, a skill set in itself. So as you can do that and clarify the right information and help people being heard, that is a really good fundamental competency. Correct. And as the you know, parents probably told us when we were little, you have two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you speak. But a great insight. Now, the next thought is in terms of fundamental competencies, integrity, honesty. Are you consistent in your words and actions? Do you carve out exceptions for yourself? Well, everybody has to use multi-factor authentication. Well, except for me, because I'm, I'm, I'm a security person. Or everybody needs to be ethical, but you know I'm the boss, and so I can get away with things such as that. Uh, you really need to model the behavior that you want your people to follow because it takes away the argument, well, hey, the boss did it, so why can't I? Yeah, and, and I think the biggest thing is this is the easiest way to lose trust, mm -hmm. right? If, if a boss says, oh, yeah, you're good. Yeah, let me take care of you in promotion. And then in the promotion panels, he is bad-mouthing you. And you get feedback on that from some of your peers who are, you know, partners in the firm. Well, I don't think you can ever work for a person like that again. That would be really hard to, to keep the trust when you when that integrity is lost. So that's that's a really good one to, to make sure people know you are an honest person. And honesty also includes providing honest feedback. If someone is not pulling their weight, you need to let them know. Um, quick C story, if I may. So when I had command uh, several years ago, I had a commander who worked for me who was just not getting it. He was not doing the leadership role. And uh, I gave him probably a not very favorable report of fitness. And essentially he said he really wasn't ready for his promotion. And he was heartbroken. I said, look, I'm just calling it the way it is. We talk, but let's talk again. Here's the path to getting back on track. And he chose to follow all those recommendations. He did an outstanding job the second year. I documented that. And that second year on schedule, he got picked up for promotion to captain. And so what we find then is that sometimes that shot across the bow gets people's attention to say, you know, I'm not here to just blow sunshine at you, but to give you honest feedback. And so with that honest feedback comes integrity, the sense of, of honesty. Now, how about also, we were talking about oral communication previously. Is this limited to that, Ross? No, no. We definitely need written communications, the ability to write clear, concise, organized messages that are convincing, right? A big part of what you're going to be doing is sending out strategy, sending out vision, and, and other statements that people will see 
broadly across the company. And if you can't make that valuable and impactful, then from there, you're really not going to be someone that, that others can follow. Yeah. And also remember that the written communication means that it, it's got to match your intended audience. We speak or communicate, if you will, with our technical teams, hopefully in a very different way than we do with executives. So for example, when I was working in an organization and had three things that came up with the CEO that I thought warranted his attention. Well, what could you do? I mean, a typical approach is to say, send an email, for example, hey boss, or three things, and then you kind of go rambling on. I would send three separate emails. The subject line was like a tweet, so you knew exactly what action or what decision was requested. And I kept it as short as possible. The old military term bluff, bottom line up front. And so what would happen then is that although the CEO would get hundreds and hundreds of emails a day, he learned pretty quickly that if you got an email from GMARC, you could knock it out in just a couple seconds because it was a fairly straightforward, here's, I need a decision or I need a recommendation or I need an approval. And then that's it. And if there are three from GMARC, each one of them stood ahead. So when you communicate in writing, particularly to executives, don't write like you're writing a mystery novel. Don't build up to this vast conclusion at the end of page six. Put your bottom line up front, let people know exactly what you're doing, like an executive summary. And that might be all they ever need to read. Yeah. When I was in the federal government, we used to write these important status updates or messages that went out. And the first paragraph always started with action. What are the actions I need someone to do? And then you might have a second paragraph, which is what is the background, right? What what has transpired that led to this? And then, you know, more of the fluff after that. And so someone would quickly look at that and say, okay, here's the two actions I need to take. And do I, and I read a quick background, but then they don't get lost in all that fluff, that bottom line up front or bluff, as, as you mentioned, is so key. And one last thought on that, you know, when I had, you know, years ago, command of the Center for Naval Leadership. So I had 170 some odd instructors, nine captains, and, you know, seven of those captains were commanding officers in their own right. And when I would send them messages, it would, the subject line either began in all caps, action colon or info colon. And so what happened was if you got something from me and it said action, you open it. If it said info, yeah, I can get to it because I wanted everybody to be up to date. So again, be decisive in your communications, be precise and allow people to understand what it is you want. And that extends obviously beyond email, but as you think about it, avoid the fluff, get right to the point and be clear in your communications. Another area that I think is really important is shown as continual learning. And continual learning is assessing and recognizing your strengths and your weaknesses and improving your own self, right? The more we know about ourselves, the better we can become. And I think that's what a lot of the really good leaders do. They work on themselves. They continue to learn either more technical content. They learn what their deficiencies are. So maybe it's active listening and, and really improving that. that. That was my thing I had to work on. And as I started reading more books like Crucial Conversations and others to understand where I was missing things, that really helped me become a better manager when I listened to folks much better. And again, by, almost by extension, if you remember from previous uh, podcasts, we talked about GMARC's law. Half of what you know about security is going to be obsolete in 18 months. So continual learning. But here, we're not, I'm not talking about technical skills. Just as Ross had said, we're talking about learning about 
communication skills, management skills, leadership skills, communication skills, all those things there, they're going to build your portfolio to be successful at the next level. Exactly. Yeah. And and there's always something to, new to learn. You know, maybe you're learning the Myers-Briggs test and understanding personality types for the first time. That can be helpful. Mm-hmm. The The last fundamental competency that OPM describes is a public service motivation, which is a commitment to serve the public. And while not everybody's in a government agency, I, I think something similar exists of you need to believe in the mission of the company. Right. Mm-hmm. If you work for a bank and you think they're just a bunch of people who capitalize on poor people and get them in a credit card debt, you know, that's probably not a healthy thing to be reverberating through the company. Right. And this belief in the company's mission vision is ultimately something that helps the company in many ways because good talent will likely try to, will be something that people will try to poach. Right. And there's often chances where you're going to be offered much more salary in a different job. But if you really love the mission of the company, that may not be something a competing company can offer as much as where you're at. So this really allows someone to stay hooked into a company as well as fall in love with the work that they're doing. And I think, and we've discussed this personally before about loving what you do. I mean, one of the things I choose to do is I, I have the privilege to teach as a SANS instructor Uh, from time to time in their leadership and management curriculum. And there, instead of having a public service motivation, the motivation is to the mission of the SANS Institute, which is to be able to go ahead and increase the body of knowledge out there from a security perspective, as well as my focus on the careers of the students who choose to spend a week with me uh, in, in the course material. And so people say, well, why are you doing that? You could make more money doing your consulting. And I said, it's not about the money. It's about making a positive difference in people's lives and in their careers. And so the fundamental competencies is a quick recap that came from OPM are the interpersonal skills, oral communication, integrity and honesty, written communication, continual learning, and public service motivation, but we might modify that to simply say organizational mission or even customer service motivation. And so those would be our Jeopardy categories for today. And I'll take oral communication for 300, please. So each of those are the fundamental competencies, but they just get you to the table, right? Now we need to figure out what separates the the good from the great. And they call these the executive core qualifications or ECQs. And there's five of them, leading change, leading people, being results driven, having business acumen, and building coalitions. So, G-Mark, you've had a, a great career in the Navy. Can you tell me what might it mean when we're talking about leading change? Well, Ross, it's a good point because we have what we call transformational leadership opportunities as well as sometimes you have to maintain it. So if you think about it, every job, whether it's sweeping the floor or being a chief executive officer, requires mission accomplishment. We're on the payroll or we're in the organization to get something done. And that's great. So that's invariant across the jobs. You don't do your job, you might not have them. But the mark of a leader shows you do one more thing. You develop your people. 
And so by having that, which is rarely written down, what we're looking to be able to do is come up with ways to influence our people in our organization. Sometimes we find ourselves as a requirement to just maintain the steady state, which means you do your paperwork, you get your reports in on time, you get your email done, you show up at your meetings, etc. That does not advance the mission. Leading change says we're going to go ahead and take our organization to some place perhaps where it hasn't been before, which of course entails some amount of risk. But if we look at the different elements of doing those things, we'll look at six sort of sub-elements of leading change. But I want to start with probably the last from the alphabetical order list is that is vision. Every time I would teach a leadership course in the military and we'd We'd have all these officers and sometimes a room full of commanding officers. And I would say, what represents a leader to you? Every time the word vision would come out. And that's basically acting as a catalyst for change by setting a future state and articulating in a way so that others can translate that into action. Yeah, that is so important. You know, they, they touch on a number of other factors like creativity and innovation, having an external awareness. If the world is changing, you need to change too. Having some flexibility and being resilient, right? And, and last but not least, this strategic thinking, which also correlates very nicely with having a vision. So these higher level attributes really are what play together to build someone who can lead the change, right? Nobody wants someone to just sit in a chair for two years and take salary. They want to see some change and it should be for the better. And when we think about these things holistically, that's when really good things can happen. Now, it's interesting because we, we tend to joke sometime and perhaps unfairly about government jobs having people who aren't highly motivated and they're just showing up and uh, collecting a paycheck. But this isn't what we're talking about here. We're talking about senior leadership in civilian and even you know DOD civilian uh, organizations throughout the U.S. government. And these are people who have differentiated themselves by demonstrating these executive core qualifications, which allows them to be entrusted with a significant amount of authority. So as Ross had mentioned, some of these capabilities, but in addition to vision, as he had said, strategic thinking, being able to go ahead and think beyond the tactical, where are we going? Having a sense of resilience because you are going to encounter obstacles. You're going to encounter situations where you're going to su suffer little defeats. Nobody bats a thousand. If that's one thing I could remind people who are, no matter how successful you've been, nobody bats a thousand. You're going to have setbacks. And it goes back to what I think I had mentioned last week is the Vince Lombardi quote that says, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. And so by seeing somebody who has engineered their career to avoid any difficult decisions, to avoid any risk, to avoid any sense of having to go ahead and put their neck out, you may end up with a perfect record. But I've got to tell you, as a senior leader, when I see a record like that, I'm going to say, I'm not sure that I can hand the car keys to somebody like that. Because if they start to skid and they've never skidded before, they may crash. I want to see somebody who's fishtailed a couple times recovered and come back online. So the ability to lead change and keep yourself focused is going to be absolutely key as an executive qualification. Love it. I think you have some great stories there, G-Mart. The second 
core competency that they're focused on is leading people. This involves the ability to organize folks around a vision, mission, and goals. And it means you need to be able to create an inclusive workplace that fosters the development of others, cooperation and teamwork, and really has constructive resolution during conflicts. Because we all know that there's personalities and people are the hardest things to manage, right? So when we start to think about how we can lead others and, and that being a core competency of any good manager, what do, you, what do you think we need to focus on so that we can achieve that, G-Mark? Well, as, as you, it was interesting because I noticed that I had started out talking about even before we got to qualification two, leading people, that, and we were talking about leading change, but I kind of introduced that with the ability to also go ahead and have that as part of your job description. And I believe that very, very strongly, uh, that your role as a manager is that, as Admiral Grace Hopper had said, you know, you manage things, you lead people. And so in leading people, some of the elements that are considered to be core competencies here are the ability to manage conflict. Now, people don't get along all the time. People don't always come to the same agreement all the time. If you do, we have what they used to call the sycophants, the, the yes men, if you allow for the gender um, standardization there in that old term. But the point is, is that you're all going to agree to drive off the cliff together. Okay, all the lemmings say, hey, this looks like a good idea. So sometimes you want to be able to encourage a little bit of creative tension. You want to be able to have other ideas. And how do you do that? As a leader, you don't shoot people down when they offer ideas. Because if you've got a group of people together, including some experienced folks and some young new people, and, and the young person on your staff says, hey, I think maybe we should do this or that. And one of the old grouches go, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Are you an idiot or something? Well, you know what? That person has been shut down and you're not going to hear from again. So you cannot allow that to happen. And what I tell people is when you do brainstorming sessions, which is there's no such thing as a bad idea, there's only ideas that get well prioritized to the very, very bottom. So maybe when the sun goes dark, we'll get to it. Uh, but it's not, you don't want to shut down those creative juices. So again, thinking about not only encouraging other opinions, but also managing conflict uh, to be able to say, hey, get together. Now, quick thought on that, if I may. So, Ross, you got two people that come to you and they said, hey, boss, uh, we're trying to come up with a decision. I mean, I think this ought to be this and he thinks that ought to be that. Uh, what should we do? And if you're a new manager, and I'll use that term specifically, you're going to be intended to try to resolve it. You're going to play Solomon. You'll bring me the sword. Let me divide this baby in two. Here, here's yours. Here. And then all of a sudden, what have we taught our people? We've taught our people not to make decisions on their own, but to bring it to the boss. And so eventually you'll have a whole queue outside of your office of people asking for your decisions on the tiniest of subjects. And that's not leadership. What leadership involves is you go to the first person and say, okay, you tell me in your words what the other person's saying. And I know you disagree with it. Well, he's an idiot. No, he's not saying that. Well, he's saying we need a stupid. No, he's not saying it's stupid. He's saying we need a firewall for our enterprise. Okay, got it. Now, person two, what's the first one saying? Well, he, and you sell now, he's saying because we moved to a cloud that a firewall is inappropriate and a waste of money. Okay, so now you've at least articulated each other's position. Now, I need you to come back here at three o'clock and tell me what you decide. 
Make them go back and work it out. And I said, you know what? If you come back at three o'clock and you haven't decided, come back at five. If you need to, you can come back at 6.30. I'll be here. And you don't want to be here. So what you train your people from that perspective is to resolve the conflicts themselves. And what I like here is you're really illustrating how to develop the people that work for you, right? Mm -hmm. Because we may not be able to afford rock stars on every position, right? We're going to have some positions that are junior and some positions that are, are senior. But you know what? If I can spend a little bit of time and do the coaching development plans and really help every single person become the best that they can be over the next year and really getting to becoming a rock star, now I can create a rock star organization. Exactly. And, and that's a great place to be. And you know what? You're going to make some lifelong friends. It's not just about the business. And people are going to love love working for you. So the more you invest in them, I think the more they'll invest in you. I think so too. And a couple other thoughts that come into leading people about team building, getting everybody on the same team. And something that's often misunderstood is, is diversity or leveraging diversity. Uh, diversity is not Pokemon. You got to catch them all. Diversity has nothing to do with trying to go ahead and, well, actually, technically, in some cases, it does. You got to meet some legal or other requirements. But as we look to try to involve people who traditionally have not been in our career patterns. For example, there's outreaches for women to get into cybersecurity, for minorities to get into cybersecurity. It's not because that they're kind of doing reverse discrimination against someone like me who's a white male. It's like, you've been here and that door was always open. But these folks had not been given an invitation before and we're leaving all of this talent on the table. Look at all the additional people that you have not invited in who are not going to develop because they never thought they had a chance. So what you want to look for is people who can bring different ways of thinking, who can bring different ideas to the table. And as a result, what's going to happen is you're going to enrich the organization by letting people share ideas from people who have different backgrounds, different experiences, and therefore may see things differently and hopefully keep you from driving over a cliff because they're going to spot what nobody else noticed. Yeah, I, I love this idea of diversity and inclusion because we have too much groupthink. And when we're all thinking it's a good idea and it's not, then bad things happen. So having more views, especially those from diverse points of view, really helps the organization stay stronger. And, and, and that's a fantastic thing to always look for when you're building out your, your strategic think tank team of, of folks who are going to support you as a leader. Concur. We also need to think about the third core competency, which is being results driven. Another way of, of stating this is creating mission impact, the ability to meet organizational goals and customer expectations producing high quality results. And, and that can be from technical knowledge, analyzing problems, and, and just creating risk-based decisions as a CISO. So G-Mark, what is it we need to do to create this culture of really good CISOs that are results-driven? Ross, one of the first things I would do is emphasize the importance of accountability. Whether it's in a commercial organization, a government, civilian organization, or the military. If we looked at responsibility, accountability, and authority, the one thing you cannot delegate away is accountability. I can hand out the responsibility. I can say, hey, Ross, 
you're responsible for making sure that the podcast editing is completed and we get it posted by such and such a time. That works. I can provide the authority. I can say, hey, I'm in charge, but my subordinate, I need you to go over there and do such and such, and you tell them you're acting on my behalf. But if it doesn't get done, I can't go to my boss and said, well, you just gave me lousy people and they couldn't figure out how to do things. It's not my fault. Blame my subordinates. You know, as we realize, yeah, that doesn't happen or better not happen. So accountability means that you are ultimately answerable for the results and importantly, not just the results that you produce, but the results of your team. And so when praise comes in, you share it with your team. When criticism comes in, you accept it for yourself. And that's kind of hard to do initially, but once you learn that, we, your people will understand that you've been protecting them. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't hold them ultimately accountable, but uh, you, you don't just keep push the blame downhill. You push the credit down. Yeah, there's a lot of attributes to to making this happen, right? You need someone who has the technical credibility to to get people to follow. You have someone who's got good problem solving skills and, and decisive. But I, I really like this idea of accountability. And I think about an organization where I was in, where a CISO said, hey, we got 150 things that are top priorities that we need to do this year. And, and that is just way too many. I mean, we got to think of like between five and 10, if we want anybody to have a chance at remembering these things, right? And, and Go ahead. And then, so you're kind of almost leading to one of the other topics here, which is decisiveness, which is make a decision. And what's interesting when we talk about decisive is, you know, this is kind of a saying, it says, I may not always um, know the right answer, but I'm never uncertain. And what you find is this. If you had 100% of the information before you made a decision, you could be replaced with an algorithm. If you had only 50%, you'd be replaced with a coin toss. So the sweet spot is somewhere between 50 and 100. And the goal is to be able to get to maybe 60, 65, 70% of all available data, then make a decision that is in the high 90s and confidence factor. And that comes from experience. And so by being able to be decisive, making timely decisions, even if you have limited information, make the best choice you can and move forward. Yeah, that ability to problem solve in that period of time where you understand how much information do I need to collect without destroying the urgency of the situation, right? That is really key. And and I saw some leaders in when I was going through the ranks where we would, you know, similar to your uh, Solomon example, we would say, hey, we need some help. What do you think? And we'd ask questions to them and they wouldn't make a decision. They wouldn't help us solve the problem. And you know what that meant? That meant we would just work around them and wouldn't work with them. Mm-hmm. And and that's not the kind of leaders and managers we want going forward in any organization. Right. And then a couple other last thoughts on that uh, is the concept of trying to create future success, figure out new opportunities. Where could we go? And in a way that's sort of like entrepreneurship. I remember when back during the Obama administration, they came out with a cloud computing initiative. And I was actually at a meeting over at Commerce Department when young man came in from the White House staff and said, hey, this is a new initiative. It's not an order. You're not saying you must go to the cloud. But it was basically the administration telling the different departments, this is a direction that you should strongly consider. In a way, it's a type of an entrepreneurship because you're going after something new that didn't exist before. And that, as we find out today, now about 10 years later, 
uh, that there's been a significant move to the cloud, which includes a lot of cost savings, a lot of performance advantages, and, and in most cases, much better security. Yeah, this understanding of, of having entrepreneurial qualities actually maps really well to the next one of core competency, which is business acumen. Having someone who understands the financial piece, the human capital piece, and the technology piece. And, and for a lot of technologists, this is one of the harder ones. We may be really good at going on a keyboard and logging into things, but do you understand the budget? Do you know how to look through a profit and loss statement? Have you ever had to deal with SEC reporting before? Do you understand all of these little things of headcount and how much we're going to grow or not grow and, and spend and making sure you hit your, your spend targets through the year? This is something that a lot of people get through an MBA program, and, and it really helps to season the technologist, because when you're in those senior ranks, you're surrounded by legal officers, by financial officers, by sales teams, and they're going to speak the language of business. Yeah. And, and I remember when I did my MBA, I thought the biggest accomplishment I got out of that was learning a new language. And it was something I'd kind of deferred for years. I was going to get to it, going to go to it. And finally, I remember taking a, a Stephen Covey course where we looked at building an action plan for your life. And one of the things I wrote down, I said, I shall do this by such and such a date. Well, lo and behold, when you write things down, it becomes a lot more real. And uh, I was privileged to go ahead and, and get an excellent education. And um, I kind of, I kind of joked, I kind of vindicated all the screwing around it as an undergraduate by being able to graduate at the top of my class in B school. But nobody cares where you graduate in the class. It's kind of like, did you get the ticket? But more importantly, did you get the knowledge? And what we find then is the ability to do financial management, huge. Managing your people, going ahead and selecting the right employees. You can't just say, well, HR is going to staff it for me because it's ultimately your responsibility if you're hiring people for your department to give them a go, no-go decision. And then, of course, on the technology, as we kind of go back and forth in our CISO Tradecraft broadcast between soft skills and harder skills, is you really got to keep a mixture of both to be effective and to be viewed as a leader with business acumen. One of the ways in my career I was able to get a lot more done than perhaps some of my peers on the business side is I always had a couple of nuggets ready for any time. And, and so imagine in the federal sector, they had things like use or lose money where they said, okay, we have some money, people haven't spent it, we got to spend it by year end, right? Mm -hmm. If you already have some business plans put together where you've, you've you know done these things of, here's three things I can do tomorrow if I had X amount of money, and you put that, and you always have that on the table, then when those opportunities arise, that allows you to get money into your organization quickly to expand the operations and be ready. And so it's those little things of having some business continuity plans, having business proposals ready that really help a CISO grow his revenue at the right point in time. And there's also a little bit of a political element in that as well, is that if you find that you need something, for example, we need data loss prevention, or we want to go ahead and set up a security operations center, things that are expensive and things that are involved, you go, well, we, I know I don't have the budget for it. I don't ask for it anyway. And what might happen after a couple budget cycles, you're going to say, hey, Ross keeps asking for this thing. Maybe we ought to give it to him. Uh, and so you're, you're sensitizing, if you will, if you're prepping the battlefield for perhaps a budget discussion 
But another thing which kind of fits into the CYA category is that, that if something really does go terribly sideways and it could have been mitigated by the tool or technology or the resource that you had been advocating for months and months and months. Sometimes we find out that uh, when you look for a CISO or a CSO, that the S stands for scapegoat. And you don't want to be the chief internal scapegoat officer. You don't want to be the person that they say, well, we need to fire somebody and offer them up to the press. And so what we wanted then is that effectively be able to identify what's the um, opportunities here? How can we do better? And it, and it really kind of brings us into our last core qualification about building coalitions to be able to build not only internal coalitions, but those if you're in the government with federal, state and local governments or nonprofits or other organizations in the business world, it means building coalitions, not only internally within the IT department, but across the enterprise with other different business units and from time to time cooperating with other groups such as the uh, InfraGuard being able to participate there or other groups as well. And so three core subcomplements, if you will, partnering, political savvy, and abilities to do influence in negotiations. So Ross, what are your thoughts on that? This is so key, right? Are you spending the time to get to know your peers? Because your boss may love you, but your peers may hate you, right? They may think of security as this black box, and I don't really know. The only thing I know is it costs a lot of money, right? And, and that's not where you want to be as a CISO. But if you're getting to know the business priorities, you're trying to understand what does the finance need to have in order to close their statements at the end of the month? And if these IT systems are not up, well, that's going to really impact them. And, and, and now you find those things where you can partner with them to build out resilience around the systems that they need. That's allowing you to build these coalitions of people that are going to help you. Right. When you're saying, here's these systems that are so important to Treasury and other folks within your organization, and they agree, and they're the ones asking for your budget, and they're the ones helping you uh, get promoted, recommending you for you know bonuses at year end. Those are all the little things. So are you doing the little things like meeting with people at lunchtime, of taking the time to get to know people and not just be a pure machine and only business, right? That little bit of political savviness. And then also knowing what things are going to work and what things are not going to work, right? We all have bosses with certain tendencies, right? This person may hate this idea. It may be the right idea, but if the CEO of the company truly hates it, you may not have a chance of getting that approved. And if you keep picking at it, it's going to hurt your career, right? Mm -hmm. So so understanding some of those little politics is, is really helpful. Yeah, you mentioned the word politics, and I think that's absolutely key, is that what I found in careers is that there's pretty much four different competencies that we need to develop throughout. The first one is a technical competence. We get promoted early on, we get selected for our first job in IT security, and we make our first couple of promotions based on our technical skill. At some point in time, though, we we're able to develop management expertise. We'll get promoted again based upon our management skills. But then at some point, we brought in to a leadership role and we'll get promoted based on leadership role skills. But at the highest levels, you get promoted on your political skills. 
And what's interesting is that for some people, each of these skill sets are orthogonal. That is to say, you can be a brilliant technician and lousy at management, at which point you probably stay in a technical career. You're happy. Organization may be happy. Some organizations, at least you know, where I was in the military, in the officer community, you're up or out. You either move to the next level or you end up retiring or leaving at that level. So think carefully about the politics of the organization. And as Ross had said, getting to know people, getting to build these coalitions is going to be key because at the end of the day, executive picks other executives. All right. It's a board of executives who select the next set of executives. It's not your peers voting you off the island up to the leadership island. It doesn't work that way. And so as a result, we sometimes see people, we say, well, no, he's just brown nosing. He's hanging around with the big boss or things like that. He says, maybe, but could also be perceiving something that you have not yet perceived because you lack this insight is that this person is demonstrating their expertise to deal with the politics. Because when you get to the highest level, you're going to be dealing with the press. You're going to be dealing with suppliers. You're going to be dealing perhaps with legal teams and, and mergers and acquisitions and other things. And it's too late to learn the politics. And, and there's two other important aspects that I've seen out of this. The first is this really is how you show your influence, right? Your, mm -hmm. your training, making things happen. The, and, and the second is, this is how you leave your legacy, right? What things uh, is going to happen in the organization years after you leave? And, and how did you train the next generation of folks to become the leaders that you want? And it's because you built healthy coalitions, you've changed the processes, and you've really done a lot to, to make the organization last in this optimal state, hopefully. So let's recap. We talked about some fundamental competencies that allow you as an individual to have the opportunity for success. You develop interpersonal skills, excellent oral communication, demonstrate integrity and honesty, are proficient at written communication, are continually learning and have a motivation either toward public service or the mission of your organization or the well-being of your customers. And then when we look at the overall core uh, qualifications, it's leading change, leading people, being results-driven, having business acumen, and building coalitions. And therein lies, if you will, sort of the recipe for what's looked for for success as in the federal government, we select the leaders for tomorrow. That's an excellent recap, Mark. And so use these insights as your CISO tradecraft. Understand where you want to grow, understand what you need to focus on, and then you'll be the CISO that everybody needs tomorrow. I like so that. thanks again for this uh, opportunity for us to share with you our ideas as we you know, really focus on these great things that others have shared openly and publicly. And use this as a, as a platform to share with others. Do you know folks who would benefit from this? Send them a link to the podcast and, and subscribe. We thank you again for your time and look forward to having you with us on the next episode. All right. Until next time, take care.